0: You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app, or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight we'll be in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11. We've entitled this study, The Vanity of Slavery Again. The Vanity of Slavery Again. And so, we find that the, the brethren uh, in the Galatian churches, uh, some of them were headed back to the things of the law, the activities of the law, and the mentality of the law, and they would be foregoing the great blessings we have in Christ. Let's read that text, and then let's use the text before to set it in the right context. Galatians 4, 8, beginning, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elements, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain." So Paul says, this exercise in Christianity for you guys is not going well, and my efforts to bring you Christ. And as Paul would say, he labored more than all the other apostles. He certainly had labored to bring them the gospel. We read about that in the book of Acts. Uh, He said that that may be an exercise that was fruitless on your behalf. And so uh, we are in this argument, uh, which is uh, stated clearly in chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Everything that's followed since then is Paul setting out the argumentation, the reasons, the rationale, uh, motivations uh, for that life that is in faith, in Christ, we saw that the salvation that comes by faith in Christ was not by the law, but by the promise made all the way back to Abraham in chapter three, verse six. Even so, Abraham believed God; it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. So, you need to be a son of faith, not a son of the law. If you're under the law, chapter three, verse ten. It was cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. The law is not of faith, but on the contrary, he who practices them must live by them. But 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So the law was not a blessing in that sense, in the sense of salvation. The law put us regarding salvation, the law putting us all under a curse. Then, but why the law? So, Uh, chapter 3, verse 22, Paul explained, the scriptures imprisoned everyone or everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So we're still in that section where Paul introducing this thought back in 3 and uh, 23, The law being a prison, the law a prison keeper, the law imprisoning us, the law that pedagogue or disciplinarian, that that harsh one that would uh, bring to Christ so that we might be justified by faith, the law of the guardian, the pedagogue, 324, but so we could be justified by faith, but before faith came, being under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith, 323, would be revealed. So, in the law is imprisonment. In the law is a captivity. In the law is a slavery. But in Christ, and justified by faith, 324, we're no longer under the guardian, but now sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. And 329, if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So here Paul is subverting again this Jewish expectation and this Jewish thought that the law was everything you needed, that the law was uh, the full embodiment of God's grace and truth, and it was the way of salvation. It was not. It was a, it was a thing that imprisoned. It was a thing that shut people in. It, it was a warden. It was, it was a keeper. Now, uh, there's better things intended for the children to stay that way so we had last time, verse uh, four, uh, 1 of chapter 4, a child who's an heir it doesn't differ from the slave, even though he's the owner of all things. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So we were children. We were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, we read that because it's important for what we start in verse 8. In The law was a bondage to the elemental things of the world. Now, that is a term that is occasionally used to talk about paganism, but here it's used to talk about the law. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. All right, so in the law, you're a slave. In the faith in Christ, you're a son. In the law, you're kept as a ward. In the gospel, in the way of Christ, you are made an inheritor. You're made an heir. So the Jews thought, among all the world, they're the true sons of God. They're definitely the sons of Abraham, and so they were the ones who or the blessed ones. Not so. Not so in this regard. They found themselves in the same place as the pagans, shut in sin, waiting until Christ would come and reveal the truth. So here we are tonight in verses 8 and 9. We wonder about what Paul asks here. Paul says, would you rather be slaves again? Really? you want, Now you've been set free? You've been made an heir? You, you have the Uh, ability to go and cry, Abba, Father, you have the approach to the Father, and you'd rather go back to that slave situation? Does the slave come up and hug the master's neck? Does the slave get an inheritance? What does the slave have? He has duties. He has responsibilities. Endless ones, mostly. But he doesn't have the opportunity to cry to the master, Abba, Father. But since we've been uh, made sons... So we have this, one more passage before we read verse 8. John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And so the Father and the Son will come stay with you. The Father and the Son will come dwell with you. Now, as nice as the slave quarters might have ever been, from the most generous of masters, when did a when did a uh, uh, when did a, a master ever go and stay at the slave quarters? He didn't do it. But does the father go and stay with his children? So here we are. However, at that time, verse eight. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which were by nature no gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God. At that time, so the the previous time, uh, the prior time, the previous and prior time, uh, they did not know God. Now, we think... Is Paul talking to the Gentiles here? It sounds like he's talking to the Gentiles at first, because what is the constant state of the Gentile outside of the law in the time of the Old Testament? So we have things like Ephesians 2. Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, which is performed by the flesh with human hands, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenant and the promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Okay, so not knowing God, that is the state of the Gentile. And the Gentiles even seem to recognize that to some degree, as Paul, when he went to Athens to preach the gospel there, he says as he gives his sermon in Acts seventeen twenty-three, I was passing through your city, and I observed the objects of your worship. And I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What you therefore worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. So, you know you don't know God. Let me tell you about him, Paul said to the pagans. So, we think at first maybe Paul is talking to pagans. But in this whole book of Galatians, where are Gentile Christians hardly brought up at all? And what's the argument been? about what the law does in bringing sons who were treated as slaves and wards and uh, irresponsible minors, uh, about the law bringing those people to faith in Christ. And that's what he's going to get right back to. And so is, is he talking here about pagans who uh, at that time did not know God? No. I think he's talking to Jews who did not know God. He's talking about Jews, and the Jews thought they knew what? The Jews thought they knew God, but did they really? They didn't really know God. Back in chapter 4, verse 1, the, that heir was a child who didn't differ from a slave. He was under guardians and managers. Who did the child deal with? Did he deal with the one from whom he inherited all things? No, he dealt with the guardians and the managers. He was kept under custody, verse 3 are kept under bondage to those elementary things of the world. Well, these Jews thought by dealing with the cust- these custodians and guardians and managers through the law, they thought they had the fullest of insights. What we found when Jesus came, so many of them had no insight whatsoever. They didn't have any insight into who God was. They didn't know God hardly at all. And so we find things like this, which apply equally to Jew and Gentile unbelievers, things like 1 John 3, 1. See what a great love the Father has bestowed upon us, that's the believers in Jesus Christ, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it doesn't know him. Now when he said the world doesn't know us, and they don't know him, is he talking about the Jewish unbelievers or the Gentile unbelievers? As the world who don't know Christians and don't, they don't understand and know Christians, and they don't know and understand God. Is that the Jewish uh, 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 unfaithful or the pagan unfaithful? It's both. That world doesn't know him, and so it doesn't understand us. It speaks equally of both. In First John 5 and 19, we know that we're of God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one well, that world that lied in the power of the evil one, and they knew their father, the father of the devil, John eight forty four, 44, but they didn't know God so well, that includes an awful lot of the Jewish community. And so, under the law, a whole bunch of people didn't know God, and they were slaves to the things which by nature are no gods, and so they, they just kept this outward form of the law they kept these things as rites and rituals without understanding the deeper significance of them or the one who was behind it all. They didn't know. They went through the motions, and so they didn't know God. Again, the Gentiles didn't know God. Paul would tell the Thessalonians, don't live in lustful passion like the Gentiles who don't know God. What we well, would also tell the, current, the, the Thessalonians, he says that God will come and deal uh, retribution Uh, to those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel. So those who don't obey the gospel are put in same league and same category with those who don't know God. If you knew God, you'd obey the gospel. The Jews don't obey the gospel because why? They don't know God. And the law, which was a schoolmaster to lead them to Christ, what if you didn't listen to the schoolmaster? What if you didn't listen to the disciplinarian? What if you didn't listen to the lessons? What if you didn't get the lessons of the law? Why, then, you've missed the one the law was pointing to, and also the one who gave the law with all the pointers in it. They missed what the law was pointing back to, which was God, they, just as they missed what the law was pointing forward to, which was Christ. They didn't know God coming or going. And so here Paul says to the Jews who thought themselves free indeed and sons of Abraham, You guys in Judaism are slaves who don't know God. Now, it's going to get worse. Before we end this chapter, Paul's going to tell the the Jews who want to live under the law, you people aren't children of Sarah, you're children of Hagar. So it's going to get worse. But it's not by accident that Paul says these people trying to live the law without Christ. It's no accident he says, you are Unknown people doing an unknown thing and you're just you're just slaves. You're slavishly keeping this set of restriction without an understanding of what's behind it or where it's going, uh, who caused it to start and who caused it to end. Y'all don't know anything. You're just keeping these things and these rules like a bunch of slaves who just got the instruction book and you, you keep the basic things of it. And you think you've come to full enlightenment. And he said, you have missed it as far and as much as you can miss it. You're in the same place as those Gentiles you look down your nose at all the time. As he said in the book of Romans, Romans 3, 9, What then? Are we, the Jews, better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. The law didn't keep you from sin. The law just proved you're sinful. The law didn't obviate the need for Christ. It pointed out the need for Christ. And they who did not by the law come to Christ, they missed the greatest point of it all. So it turns out they didn't know Christ, and they didn't know God, and they were just slaves following along these instructions and getting mad at others who tried to escape the plantation, basically. We might use a modern metaphor. So verse 9. But now you have come to know God. Ah, now in Christ, now in Christ, God was pointed out. Now in Christ, God became known to you. Or he says, amazingly, or rather be made known or rather be known by God. So it's not just that you figured out who God is, but you have such a close relationship to God through Christ and through Christ alone it's not to the point that God knows who you are. Now, not in the sense that, you know, obviously, God knows who everybody is, right? God knows everybody and everything. That's not the kind of knowledge here of which Paul speaks. Paul speaks about God knowing you in the sense of you know a friend. So like 1 John 5 and verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come. And has given understanding so that we may know him who's true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. So we're in him. Uh, We are with him. Uh, We uh, we have this uh, relationship uh, together. As we read a while ago from John 14, 23, just where we read the text, and started the study tonight, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him, and make our abode with him. So this is how much he knows you. He knows where you live, and he's coming by for a visit. He's going to come abide with you. Uh, So imagine if we're walking down the street, and there's some famous and notable person, and somebody says, "Hey, look who that is! It's so and so." And somebody else kind of dismissively goes, "Oh, everybody knows that's him, right? I mean, it's, they're famous, they're they're well known, uh, they're they're active in the community. That's why they're famous, and and all." And so, yeah, we all, uh, yeah, you recognize who that is. We all recognize who that is. There's some people that's a relationship with God. God is, uh, you know, known to them in that sense. That uh, they know who He is. Uh, they've heard about what he's done. Uh, he's quite famous, maybe, uh, in their circles. Uh, he may even be well-spoken of in their circles. But, you know, th- there's no real knowledge there. It's just, okay, there's some understanding that that's who he is. But what what if, in seeing this famous uh, and, and uh, 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 notable person, uh, we say, yeah, we know who that is. Uh, of course, I know them. I know them. Now, that's kind of what Jesus says, you know, when he says, I and the Father are one, and I and the Father are working together. Uh, He says, I know God. It's not just that I know who God is, but I know God. And so if we'd say about this famous and notable person, oh, yeah, of course, that's him. I know him. And they go, you do not know him. Now, they all know who he is. But in the sense that we just said, I know him. uh, Everybody go, no, you don't know him. You don't know him at all. And we say, yes, we do. Yes, yes. uh, I know them quite well. They've been friends of mine for many years. And on occasion they come over to the house, and what are they what's your friend going to say uh-uh, no way that's no, no, but with God, isn't that our relationship? Yes, we know each other, yes, we have been friends for some time now, and then what does your friend say? Oh yeah, prove it, prove it, oh okay, well, you know, um, I can tell you uh that we're quite friendly as a matter of fact, he voted me into his club. And he gave me a nickname. He personally gave me a nickname. He gave me a new name. And they're like, no, well, Revelation two seventeen, he that has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I'll give the hidden manna. I'll give him the white stone, the one with a name written on it, which no one knows, but he who receives it. So they're the promises of the one who overcomes. It's like getting voted into a to a, to a one of these secret societies. Uh, that ancient and modern men both love. We always love secret societies. You get to shut everybody out and, you know, they're over there and, hey, we're in the in crowd. But we got the white stone. We didn't get the black ball. We got the white stone. And on that white stone, there's a name. He wrote a name on it for us. That's how much he knows us, right? You don't give a nickname. You don't give a new name to somebody you don't know very well, right? That's reserved for friends. And usually it reveals something about you. There's some kind of inside story. There's some kind of quality. There's some kind of something that that new name conveys. Well, so he gave me he gave me the white stone. He gave me a new name. And by the way, he, he gave me a nice set of clothes. He did? Yeah, he gave me a set of clothes I could never afford. Yeah. Revelation 3, 5. To the one who overcomes, he will thus be clothed in white garments. And I won't erase his name from the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father, and before the angels. So this, it's not just that you know God, but rather you're known by God. Well, here Jesus says, yeah, I'll confess his name. Normally, what, what's the order of things? We confess his name, right? We confess the name of Jesus. In this text, in Revelation 3, 5, it's him confessing our name. Because we know him, and he knows us. And we can go on with that with many of the blessings, right? It's like that famous person and notable person. We see them get into their fancy car and they say, hey, come over here, get in the car with me, sit down. And we go, we, we drive off. And what, what do our friends do? <gasps> he got in the car with them, right? Well, you think about it, he, all the blessings he gives us. And we could go through many of them. He knows us. He gives us these blessings. He gives us these personalized blessings. In this passage, he has adopted us, right? That was back up in verse four, or verse five, that he might redeem those who are under the law that he, we would receive the adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, no longer a slave, but a son, verse 7, and an heir through God. So, look what's in the new relationship. Look what's in Christ that the law led you to. There's this change of status. You've been adopted. You're a son, not a slave. There's this change in relationship. And instead of just getting the rule book from the master, instead of getting the latest instructions from the teacher or the disciplinarian, you have this intimate connection where he's you, your hearts sing together, Abba, Father, not a slave, but a son. And you want to do what? How is it now? The text continues in verse nine. How is it now? What do you What are you thinking? How is it now that you turn your you turn back? to the weak and worthless elemental things. You would give that up so that you could go take a grain offering to an altar in Jerusalem. You would give that up uh, for uh, so these things of the, uh, of the Sabbath and of the synagogue and of, the, uh, of all those rites and, and rituals of the law. You, you want to you trade what Christ did and his sacrifice for, for you taking in a turtle dove and the priest snapping the neck of that thing and sprinkling the blood around? Really? That's what you want? You, you want to troop a lamb to the temple once a year at Passover and have the, have the priest slit the throat of that little animal? You want that instead of the Christ sacrifice for you? Come on. So Hebrews 9, These things are a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper pure in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Or the seventh chapter of Hebrews said, This former commandment was set aside being weak and useless, since the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, there's the bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So you, you want that stuff again? You want that relationship. You want those sacrifices. You want that system of living. You want that mentality of life. You want this that Peter said, Acts fifteen ten, a yoke which neither us or our fathers were able to bear. So you, to finish verse 9, you want this, you desire to be enslaved all over again. No. No rational person thinks about being enslaved again. No person thinks, oh, that's better. Oh, I want that. That was the mentality of the law. Think about the prodigal son's older brother. When the prodigal son's older brother complained that the father had killed the fatted calf, what did he say? He said, look, For many years, my translation said, I've been serving you. The word they're serving is the verb form of the word slave or servant. We use them both in English. The doulos. Some translations, and I think rightly say, the NIV does, plus a number of others, says, I have slaved for you for years. I've worked like a slave. And that's the mentality some people under the law, and unfortunately, some people in a diminished view of the grace of God and the gospel have, that we have this years of slaving away. We have this years of serving. And by that, we, we ought to be given something. By that, we, we ought to uh, have a reward based on our work. I have never neglected a command of yours, the old elder son would go on to say. Yet you've never given me the, the goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours came who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, and you killed the fatted calf. So I've been slaving away, and I didn't get much. But this guy comes back after being so terrible, and you throw a celebration for him out of all proportion. And this is how some people respond when the great grace of God is offered, and they think, well, what have I ever got out of this? I've just slaved away. Well, these people are returning to this slave mentality. And it's a, it's a terrible mentality to get stuck in that you you can't let God be gracious to other people because you're embittered yourself, and and you're you're un, you're unsure of what it's going to look forward you know look like if we go on in this way without all these rules. Where are we going to end up, and what are we, what's going to be allowed, and and how are we going to keep control on things? And uh, no, let's let's just stick to the comfortable. Uh, we've Think about this parable in Matthew twenty, where the landowner had sent out uh, to get workers in the vineyard in the morning, and then throughout the day he called more and more workers to the vineyard all the way up till an hour before quitting time, and then he started giving out the the uh, wages, and he gave to those Matthew twenty verse nine, when those who came who were hired the eleventh hour he gave each one denarius. And when those who were hired first came, thinking that they would received more, but each also received a denarius, when they received it, they grumbled, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, what if I've done you no wrong? Do we not agree for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But if I wish to give this last man the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish? With what's my own? Is your eye envious because I'm generous? Maybe that, maybe that some of these Jewish brethren are getting envious of the Gentiles, who have just come in on you know the ground floor and they're escorted straight to the penthouse. That they didn't go through that long period of tutelage, that long period of direction under the law. Uh, They didn't keep those commandments for many years. Uh, They weren't burdened by all that, and yet now they get the same offer of free grace. As the rest of us, maybe there's some envy there. But in whatever way, the the solution is not to go back and act like a slave again. But that's what some of these were doing. So verse 10, you're acting like slaves. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Well, there's all the things of the law. And so as we said earlier, when we started in verse 8, it says, At that time you did not know God, and you were slaves to the things which by nature were no gods. We thought, well, has he switched to addressing Gentiles momentarily? No. Three verses later, he's right back on Jewish things. Days and months and seasons and years. And so the Sabbaths, the new moons, the three feasts that you went to Jerusalem for, if you could, the two other feasts, Purim and Hanukkah, which they'd added along the way. So uh, we got five. We got the monthly feast. We got the five uh, annual feast, uh We got... Uh, Uh, all these things that, that fill up the year. And I'm sure that people, you know, like we have with our Christmas and our Thanksgiving and our 4th of July and our Memorial Day and uh, our Martin Luther King Day and our Groundhog Day. And, you know, uh, we, we form sentimental attachments to these things. And, and we, we miss them terribly when they're not there this last year under, uh, you know, restrictions of, uh, of movement and, and social isolation, we had greatly diminished versions of all of the, our uh, yearly uh, cultural and religious and uh, uh, civil feasts and celebrations, and we missed them. You know, we missed a lot of that terribly. Uh, it was, uh, then there's more depression around the holidays because uh, uh, of uh, that. Then, and it always is, but now this year is so much more than normal. And I wonder if the Jews, with their sentimental attachments and their long familiar attachments to these things, if if they're not missing them, but the religious observance—not not the civil, not the familial—but the religious observance of these, as as absolute things dedicated and required by God, is not the gospel. the obs- The observation of days and months and seasons and years. The Old Testament is full of that. The New Testament is not. These are external things. These, you know, when the calendar comes, you do this. When the calendar turns to that page, you do that. And so uh, we think about even like, for instance, the day of atonement, the one day a year where you were made to humble yourself. Does a Christian, do, do we wait for it one day a year for a day of atonement? Or do we have atonement offered every day? In sin, when can we humble ourselves? Well, any time that there is sin. We should humble ourselves. So we don't have this calendar system. We don't have this external system. And, and and heaven help you. What if the day before the Day of Atonement, the happiest thing in the world had happened to you? What if the Day of Atonement was a day where you know because of the the blessings of God, you thought, "I am going to. I, I want to celebrate. <laughs> I want to have. I want to have the greatest." No,pe sorry. Put your joy off. We got a calendar thing here to observe. Well, in the New Testament, we don't have such things. Uh, although many churches have tried to recreate and, and with the religious calendar, uh, they fill the year with such things. Uh, but a lot of most people don't follow that anymore, very strictly at all, but used to. They did when Christianity had more of a cultural influence on folks. But you're acting like slaves in doing this. This is, this is the things that were given to guard, you know, while you were under custody, while you're in the bondage of the law, to guide you to Christ. But now that you're in Christ, you don't need that. So I'm afraid, Paul says, I may have labored in vain. You know, when I was with you and preached the gospel to you, and, and when my companions baptized you, because we know that Paul didn't do a lot of baptizing himself, when you people received the gospel, when you people were baptized into Christ and united with Christ, that, that was back in the last chapter, Man, we thought, this is great. Gospel's having this good effect. This has been an effectual work. Things are going great. But now, sometime later, Paul's hearing it's not so. I'm afraid my labor, all that work I did among you folks, and read Acts 13, read Acts 14, all that stuff, all that work, you guys are burning it down. It may end up being in vain that that work was done. And, you know, I have to think, this is sort of like the lament of Moses. And we're going to end here by reading Numbers 14, Numbers 14, 1 to 4. This is where the congregation in the wilderness finally tore it and got sentenced to 40 years of wandering. Moses had brought him out of Egypt. He had brought him out of a literal slavery, not a metaphorical bondage of the law but the the iron furnace of of Egyptian slavery. And he took them to the edge of the promised land, and they had sent in the spies to review the land and come back and give a report. And 10 had given a bad report, and two had not. And when they heard the report of those faithless spies, Numbers 13, this is the result. Numbers 14, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Well, what does Paul just ask the Galatians? Do you guys want to be slaves again? You want to be slaves again? What do these people want? At this point, some of them are ready to be slaves again. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is it that the Lord has brought us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder, Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And that's when they got the 40-year sentence. Moses and Aaron fell on their face in the presence of the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And I think Paul feels a little bit here like Moses. I led you people out with great difficulty in great opposition, I preach you the gospel and I showed you how these things all led to Christ. And now I've been gone a little while, and where are y'all headed back to? Slavery. Bondage. Away from the very place the law was pointing. And so, he fears that he may have labored in vain. Just as Moses and Aaron fell on their face and mourned in the presence of the assembly. And so, Here's how we can view things, like Paul points out here. We can view things the gospel way, uh, which is gladly crying out, Abba, Father, enjoying uh, the faith that's in Jesus Christ, and uh, being a son, and being an heir, and being free in all things. And He'll later tell us, don't use your freedom for an opportunity for error, but for, for good. But live like free men, men who have received the promise made to Abraham, Don't live like those who are under the law and desire the law and want the law because no one's saved in that way. So we can live like slaves. Like that that elder brother, I have slaved away. We can uh, live like those uh, men at the vineyard. Oh, I think I should get more because I've done more. Or we can celebrate with a great grace and fellowship that's in uh, God through Jesus Christ and enjoy those blessings with that attitude of of rejoicing and freedom uh, and uh, really a great gratitude, uh, a great uh, appreciation for the things that have been offered. We'll continue that next week in verse 12. Again, Paul's going to continue to let them know that the law is not that what you want but the things in Christ are. After the lesson, we ask if there were any questions. We don't really have people that are Judaizing teachers necessarily. I mean, I guess there's some of that. That's not something we run into very often. Not directly, no. But you mentioned a little bit about some application, though, that maybe does hit a little closer to home. Could you expand upon that a little bit? That elder brother... Of the prodigal, who says i've been slaving away the idea that, and there are some I think who serve Christ with kind of that uh, mentality sliding in in I do this, I don't fail, I stay steadfast, and I see other people not doing that. There can get to be a bit of bitterness in people's heart." when they think they're being, you know, faithfully stalwart and other people aren't. And then it can build up a resentment in them. I have to do this. Why don't they have to do this? Uh, one time I actually heard of, it was a gospel preacher during, during a sermon. Uh, he talked about some moral compromise he thought some other families were engaged in. His, his children, their children went to the same public school and there was a activity related to a gym class and there was a, you know, gym dress codes and a, and a activity. And he thought the, acti- he thought that the clothing at the gym class was improper. And he thought that the activity was lascivious. I don't know if he's right or not. I wasn't there. I didn't see the gym class, but other families in the congregation, whose family, whose kids went to the same place, same school, they, they participated in the normal course of the activity. And his children sat out, and his children, because of they sat out and wouldn't do it, they were there wasn't there wasn't a blowback from the school because dad comes up and says to the gym teacher, "Hey, my kids aren't going to participate in this way." And the gym teacher said, "All right, they can sit out," and and so they did. But he said that my kids were ostracized by the other kids because they sat out, and he was talking about how those other families had compromised, and he had not, and his children suffered, and theirs had not. And he, he yells loudly at the end of this point. He says, and I resent it. Um I don't know that's the attitude we need to hold to, but it's an attitude that's easy to develop. That I I take my stand here and you guys don't, and I resent it. And basically you end up resenting the brethren. And so that sort of sets you up as you know, a judge of the of, of your brethren. Uh, that sets you up kind of as, as obviously in a superior position because you're doing the right thing and they're not. They're compromising you're not, and it's easy with that kind of mentality to get to where that elder brother is. I I just des- you know I need I, I deserve better reward or I deserve some blessing or I deserve some recognition. I deserve I deserve something because I've been this faithful and they haven't, and that's what those those guys at the uh, uh Matthew 20, the parable of the vineyard, where uh, the, uh, the of the laborers in the vineyard, where the guys who've been there longer say, I deserve more. I, I should get some special recognition. And because I gave more effort. That's not the gospel economy of things, right? The gospel economy is everybody is given abundant grace, right? Everybody's given forgiveness. And it depends on your faith. Now, when people leave the faith, they're going to leave the blessings. But everybody in the family is going to receive receive the blessings, right? And you might re- it might be over time you do receive uh, through God's providence a, a more blessing than another. But how would you tell it's you know exactly related to some in one particular act or not? But we get this idea of of earned of what's earned. What we we labored longer, or we were more stalwart. Or we didn't have our we didn't have our prodigal period, and so we deserve something well, in the gospel economy, none of us really want to get to what we deserve we really we don't want to head into I deserve territory because what would you deserve uh, but it's an easy mentality to get into because with all your employees with all of your human relationships, who gets the awards? who gets the recognition, who gets the raises, right? The general economy of, of the world is you do and you're paid, right? And when people shortcut that, like, you know, you know, how come that guy's getting all these quick promotions or whatever? Oh, didn't you know he's the boss's nephew? Oh, okay. You know, we hate that kind of thing in the world, right? We hate the guys who get all the rewards we don't think they put in the effort. And yet, what is our hope in the gospel for all of us? Aren't we all wanting the big reward? Right? And if we thought about it in, in kind of a gracious way, uh, in God's way, don't we want everybody to get the reward? Right? I know we cast dispersion sometimes on deathbed conversions, but what do you want every dying person to do? I would like every dying person to repent. Right? Right? I would like that. And what do I want every 82-year-old guy to do? He's not dying yet, but, you know, hey, come on, he's, he's 82. What do I want everybody who's 82 to do? All right? Now, also, what do I want everybody who's 18 to do? They had this merit-based. The law brought in this, kind of inculcated into the people, a merit-based system. And there were some reasons for some of that. And that under the law in the book of Deuteronomy, what happens to the nation if you're faithful? You'll be blessed. What if you're not faithful? You'll be cursed. With the king of Israel, the anointed one of Israel, that whole system seems to be supercharged. And so sometimes how quickly was a king blessed for a small act of faith? On the day. And sometimes how quickly was a king cursed for unfaithfulness? Again, in the history of Israel, sometimes in a day, right? Right. Well, and I think that's a special case with the king, the anointed one of Israel. But it's that general principle accelerated. And so the Jews, by the time you get to Jesus' day, what's the rich man? Well, he's, he's the most blessed of God. He must be the most faithful. What's the poor man? He must be unfaithful, must be something him. What about the disabled man? He must be being punished. And so that kind of direct reward system it is easy for us to accept, and it's in, in so many ways, Christianity is counter to that. And there are times when we're really glad that it is. But there are other times when we just naturally kind of fall back into that sort of thinking about it when it's not. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at MulvaneChurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.